Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Cornwall Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We have a fantastic 61st episode for you today. We were lucky enough to talk with Jeff Shevlin, an expert on so-called dollars. So you'll be able to enjoy his interview later in the show. And the number of so-called dollars that were issued at World's Fairs is uh, bringing us to a discussion of World's Fair collectibles. And we're going to change it up a little bit this week when I ask Jeff a trivia question. So we're going to get to see Jeff's numismatic trivia chops. All right. And if you are enjoying this time with so-called experts, Chris and I, then (laughs) we ask you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use and certainly share with your friends, neighbors, relatives, enemies, and so forth. As you know, we were able to sit down with a different Jeff, uh, Shevlin, who is the so-called guy, as he's branded himself. That conversation wasn't confusing at all. Hey, Jeff, what do you think about yeah. Jeff? Which Jeff? Yeah, yeah. So that was, that, that, that was, that was very easy to know. <laughs> but, uh, but no, there's an easy way to do it. I'm just saying it wasn't at all confusing that we had two yeah. Jeff. So, well, hey, that's okay. Jeff squared. That's okay. My, uh, my little sister married a guy named Jeff. So, and that was, you know, it was unintentional, but a friend introduced them and she's like, Oh great. You know, you have my brother's name, but, um, that that's worked out for them for six, eight years now and whatever. So let's get back to the the numismatic nature at hand. So-called dollars is this fascinating array of, they're part of the broader numismatics, but they're not coins. They're not paper money. They are these things that stand outside of that territory, exonumia, metals, They are often issued for events, expositions, fairs, and that's what we're talking about today in this little discussion segment. Being from St. Louis, I know that the 1904 World's Fair, as we call it, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, that is an event that forever imprinted itself in the city's consciousness. It shaped the public parks because uh, Forest Park, as it is today, that event was there. The art museum is in the building, one of the buildings that housed the fair. The zoo, which is nearby, the birdcage was built for the fair. And it was like the high watermark in many respects of the city's history. I think then it was the third in the nation population wise. It was now it's not even in like it's 28 or 30th or something. So if, if not even further down the list, those particular objects that were ubiquitous for that fair, so-called dollars, as well as then some other, you know, award medals. There are there are all sorts of gorgeous award medals. These these sort of triangular pieces. I believe they were designed by 
designers that designed U.S. coins. Uh, there's there's a fantastic catalog of 1904 memorabilia that was prepared by a uh, Robert Hendershot. Bob Hendershot was present at the fair as a four-year-old and in his 90s cataloged the items from the fair. Uh, He died in the last 10 or 20 years. But it speaks to the breadth and depth of the topic of so-called dollars that you you can name an event in American history and in many respects, find a so-called dollar that's related to it in some manner. What of those pieces really calls out to you, Chris? I'm not sure that it qualifies as a so-called dollar, but there there are a few pieces issued uh, in 1909 for the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, which is held in Seattle. There are a few of them that feature um, a little prospector in classic prospector garb with a pan going to you know search for, for gold up in what is now Alaska and then was referred to as the Yukon or... You are speaking of the gold dollar, which is cataloged as Hibbler Kappen 360. It is um, 14. That's exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. So uh, that's a but, neat little piece. There's more than a dozen overall so-called dollars related to that fair, or that exposition. To that one specific one. World's Fair material more broadly is something I get a real kick out of. Even in case sense, you mentioned the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, Jeff. I have a, a couple of encased cents from that exposition. And I, I actually wrote a term paper about the uh, the Japanese living exhibit of indigenous people called the Ainu. That's a group of indigenous people native to the Japanese island of Hokkaido. I wrote like a 20-page research paper about it. So the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair is something that I'm intensely interested in. And in addition to the 1892-1893 World's Columbian Exhibition, which is probably one that's familiar to many of our listeners who have any experience with classic commemorative U.S. coins, namely the Christopher Columbus, the half dollar that was issued in 1892 and 93, and the Isabella Quarter that was issued in 1893 for that specific fair. That exposition, if I can jump in, that was where we had elongated sense debuted. There's, you know, elongated sense and case sense. They all sort of developed out of this exposition memorabilia arena. The Colombian exposition has achieved some broader renown, I think, because of Eric Larson's book, The Devil in the White City. I was going to mention oh, okay. Larson, actually. And, and, well, I, I, the Devil in the White City is a interesting history. It was turned into a movie, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was. I'd have to look into that. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure if that movie was released. Anyway, um, the Columbian exhibition is particularly interesting because it's really sort of a high watermark of a certain, you used that word earlier to describe the St. Louis World's Fair. And I agree with you that the St. Louis World's Fair is another kind of high watermark, but it seems like the World's Columbian Exhibition really captures the spirit of the Gilded Age, right? Like when people think about the Gilded Age in America, the late 19th century, a lot of times people think of that particular exposition and there's a, a lot of ink has been spilled very understandably about it. And, you know, a lot of the iconography of the exhibit communicated a kind of American triumphalism. And as the living exhibits of indigenous people underscore often a pretty vicious imperialism and racism, but they're fascinating events and the collectibles that you can get from even just those two fairs. Well, I guess we've mentioned three fairs, but the the two that we're sort of honing in on the world's Columbian exhibition and the St. Louis world's fair, you, you've alluded to this already, Jeff, there's a 
staggering array of collectibles of just those two events, irrespective of the currency that was circulating at the time, although some of the items, in case sense come to mind, actually integrated currency that was circulating at the time. There's a whole range of numismatic and exonumic and even notophilic if you count. I, I personally am really interested in the tickets, the admission tickets for these events, because some of those are not only very attractive, just the designs and the vignettes that appear on them look really good, but I also am just really interested in these tickets, especially if they're for a particular day or a particular set of days, because you know, you could even find newspaper clippings or something from the days that that particular ticket would have been used. And so it really anchors it. We've talked about this before. Numismatic and exonumic items that anchor the viewer in a very specific place and time. And I find those kind of objects fascinating. And some of them are just downright funny and weird. There's an encased scent uh, from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair that I bought relatively recently. It, it's shaped like a chamber pot. It has a 1904 um, Indian head scent in it. The aluminum encasement reads, go way back and sit down. Keep me and never be caught short, which is just such a weird, (laughs) funny thing to go and buy. And I bought it recently because, you know, with everyone hoarding toilet paper and hoarding these supplies in the context of the COVID pandemic, I thought, you know what? In the age where toilet paper is scarce, why don't I get my my own little chamber pot with this with this funny inscription? And it's just a bizarre, scategorical little artifact of this really fascinating chapter, not only in the history of St. Louis, but in the history of of America and and of World's Fairs. So the collecting opportunities there are really endless. It highlights how far we've come. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know what? I'd be willing to wager that we could still find scent. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's true. Yeah, you could even collect it as a symbol in the advancement of plumbing technology. Oh, yeah. Hey, Um, hey, we both know somebody in the uh, Shelby County Coin Club that specializes in um, refrigeration technology, not in a numismatic sense necessarily, but, you know, we've interviewed him, Bern Nagengas. So, yeah, he was on on an early episode of the pod. Jefferson Nickel expert, for those who uh, might not remember. But this speaks to the universality of there's always something that you can find to collect that allows you to place yourself in history, hold history in your hands, and really contextualize past events. Some of those tickets you refer to are gorgeous. You can get those and set those alongside postcards that were, you know, uh, highlighting different aspects of the fair. I found at at an antique shop five or ten years ago a card from the a deck of playing cards that was issued at the 1933 chicago century of progress why did i buy this single card it's a playing card i don't remember the um the suit the whatever but it shows the official medal of the fair and i thought well that would be really cool to have that next to examples of the medal and you know this is a broader way that these events have been used to commemorate and create a shared memory. And, uh, you know, you could get elongated scents that were issued at that event. You can get all these other objects. And uh, my favorite pieces from that event are actually, there's some so-called dollars that were issued by the Ford Motor Company to promote their V8 engine. And they have very much a, I would classify it and I could be wrong, but I think like an art deco type look, you know, they have a very much a a period look and they're common affordable and available. You generally find them a brownish or a, you know, you know, sometimes when uh, Indian scents or Lincoln scents are graded, you know, you get brown, red, brown, red, you know, they generally come brown because they were touched. They were held. 
sometimes you can get them a little where they're not so dark and um, that design just really evokes a feeling from that era and you know somebody who's into automobile culture ford is so important to the story of america in a sense so we all learned about you know the assembly line and all that jazz when we were in fourth grade or sixth grade or whatever it was so these objects are very much offer something that is the neatness. And you know, you can show that again to somebody who's not a collector and, and might get them interested just because of their crossover appeal. I was about to say, you could put together not only a topical collection, you mentioned Ford and the history of automobile, the, the sort of the evolution of automobiles and, and the technology that came along with that. You could not only put together a fascinating topical collection or, or thematic collection along any number of lines regarding technology, whether plumbing or cars, but you can also put together just fantastic multimedia exhibits with, you mentioned postcards, playing cards, all of the memorabilia associated with these fairs, some of the coins that might have circulated, counterstamp coins, encased scents, the commemorative coinage issued by the U.S. Mint for some of these events, um, and some of the, the designs for those commemorative coins. The silver half dollar issued for the 1915 Panama Pacific Exposition comes to mind. That's just one example of a number of very pretty commemorative pieces. I can't think of any numismatist who can't be excited by or at least interested in the thought of owning an octagonal $50 gold coin. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's it's just it's such an extraordinary piece. I mean, you have to have fairly deep pockets to acquire <laughs> one, but it is an extraordinary piece. Yeah, but those pockets are coming from uh, Savile Row or, you know, one of the uh, <laughs> high-end <laughs> right. clothiers. I guess all of this is to say that World's Fair material offers the opportunity not only to collect fantastically interesting material that anchors you in a particular event, but I think it has a lot of not like Jeff, like you said, crossover appeal. I think it also just has a lot of non numismatic or non exonumic appeal. I think that you could get people really interested in a lot of the material or the sort of class of material, whether it's exonumia, numismatics, philately, or in any other discipline. You can get people interested in those disciplines with a really good exhibit. So we love World's Fair material. We were really grateful to be able to talk to Jeff Shevlin, not only to introduce our audience to so-called dollars as a discrete collecting specialty, but also just, you know, we could talk about the World's Fairs a little bit. He he really honed in on the, the Philadelphia Exposition in 1876. Point being, there are tons of collecting opportunities, and our interview with Jeff Shevlin shines a light on, on some of those opportunities. So... Now, to pivot a little bit away from the World's Fair events that were occurring, what were some other uh, events that were occurring this week in numismatic history? So this week in numismatic history, we're going to look at something paper money-ish related. We go to May 27th of 1863, so we're, we are smack dab in the middle of the war. That was when the issue of postage currency ceased, according to the U.S. Treasurer James Gilfillan. Postage currency is a, an, a fascinating sub area or little niche of American paper money and financial fiscal document history because this was fractional currency bearing the images of facsimiles of postage stamps. There was a series of notes, the most notable were in 5, 10, 25, and 50 cent denominations from August 1862 to May 1863, May 27th being the date that we have uh, hung our hat on for this week. It's just one piece of the puzzle of objects that come from the American Civil War that were not coin 
items. You know, you have encased postage stamps, uh, you have the token, Civil War token, but it, these objects that were helping fill the gap to counter a shortage in real money, good money, federally issued. I guess it wasn't all hard money because cents weren't specie, but in any event, uh, that's part of that that landscape and that story, and that happened this week in history. Now, staying in a in a historical vein, but looking at a specific issue of Coin World, we're going to 1963 because that was the year that the first edition of the so-called Dollars book by Hibbler and Kappen uh, that we reference in the interview, the Harold E. Hibbler and Charles V. Kappen, May 24th issue, 1963 of Coin World. And what is jumping out to me? Well, on the front page, you have a story about an 1804 silver dollar selling for $36,000 at a Metropolitan New York Numismatic Convention auction. I think we would all love to be able to have, with today's money, have attended that sale because the 1804 silver dollar, There, as many collectors know, there are three classes of the 1804 silver dollar. None of them struck actually in 1804. These were all struck later for various reasons, given as presentation pieces and the like. There's plenty of numismatic uh, research exploring their issuance and their existence. Probably the um, King of Siam set being probably the most popular are uh, most well-known. But anyway, the example sold in this auction was the Davis-Hale-Fairbanks-Wolfson specimen. I have not done the deep dive to see where that coin is now, but it is. Uh, I can assure you that $36,000 in 1963 dollars is millions today. I would venture to guess $5 million or more. Certainly, the sale of an 1804 doesn't happen all the time. And I believe, believe, could be wrong. Uh, don't chide me too much if I'm wrong. But I think there's an example maybe in the ANA Museum on loan. The BB specimen could be. Anyway, maybe I'm mixing up that up with the 1913 nickel, uh, of which there most certainly is a BB specimen. It wasn't even the lead story, but I thought as we look back, we always love to place items and go, what were they worth then? And so that was the story then. Also on the front page, we have a um, mention of the introduction of legislation that would call for the end to silver certificates in 1963, which would free up for coinage purposes the 1.3 million ounces of silver that were backing the silver certificates. So that is something that is noteworthy because it allowed for the creation of a new type of numismatic item, a, a new type of uh, paper money, which we'll mention down the road here in just a few minutes. What jumped out to you, Chris? From the letters to the editor page, I usually select two. So I decided to stay in that vein. I found one sort of funny and vitriolic and the other was kind of sweet. And so I thought I would balance the uh, balance a little bit of sweet and sour, right? Beautiful. A little, uh, two very different letters. Cynicism and so, optimism. <laughs> exactly. I'll start with the cynicism. We'll start rough and, and end on a, on a high note. So this letter comes from a man named Milton B. Smith of Athens, Georgia, and it's a response. Readers often write in, as anyone who's ever worked for any kind of a publication is probably aware, people will often write in expressing their opinions about a column or an article or a piece of reporting. Whatever it is that appears, someone probably has an opinion on it. 
And this person wrote in delivering harsh criticism of what they saw as an unworthy attempt on CoinWorld's part to generate interest in new coin designs. So referencing a previous CoinWorld article, it starts by quoting the article itself. CoinWorld approves of Zest and Brio. And that last word, Brio, actually becomes important in a second. Parenthetically, the author says, whatever that is, Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary doesn't define it. And I register my own vehement protest to your fresh ideas needed before coinage can represent 20th century America. I find your so-called fresh ideas ridiculous and repulsive. Such things as you picture represent nothing but some screwballs, far-fetched, imbecilic scrawlings that should earn him a trip to the nearest psychiatrist! Exclamation point. As a people, we enjoy the greatest heritage in the world. That's certainly a strong point. Certainly a bold statement. Through the years, our pride has been portrayed not flamboyantly, but with humbleness on our postage stamps, our coins, and our currency. Recently, several of our stamps have had modernistic designs. These stamps were voted by the country's leading stamp collectors and authorities as being the most hideous and least representative. Coins such as the Franklin Half, Washington Quarter, and Roosevelt Dime do little enough for America as far as design, beauty, and symbolism are concerned. As for the USA $1 you picture, I see the following. On one side, a broken down wire fence behind which rests a rusted out automobile engine and a country outhouse, and on the other side, a dissected crayfish. Is that what we have come to? God forbid. So, <laughs> doesn't mince words, does he? <laughs> doesn't mince words really at all. So, what's funny, and the reason that I mentioned the word brio at the top, is that sometimes, to this day, but sometimes in older columns as well, CoinWorld's editing staff would pen a response if a question or allegation was made that the editors felt merited some kind of a response. They would include a brief answer to a question or a brief response down beneath the column as it appeared on the page. So what was the rejoinder to this, to Brio? Well, the rejoinder read, Reader Smith will find Brio defined in Webster's seventh new collegiate dictionary on page 105 (laughs) as a noun meaning vivacity or spirit. CoinWorld still approves of both. Which I thought was both a very measured and effective response and also just super that, funny. Well, I, that, so, that wasn't so measured. I mean, that was like a put you in your place sort of <laughs> moment. No, it certainly wasn't as um, vicious or vitriolic as the as the letter that it was uh, well, responding sure, to. Sure. So yeah, it, it, there's nothing to be said for that. But so the angst expressed by the letter, I think everyone has an opinion about new coin or stamp designs. And People are bound to disagree, and there has been, I, I think, criticism that has some merit of the designs that were on U.S. coinage for so long. I mean, the design of the Washington Quarter didn't change between 1932 and 1998. I mean, I could see how that would feel a little bit stale, but I do think it's interesting. It seems to me that the way that I interpret CoinWorld's initial article was that they were just trying to have a little bit of fun and speculate on what some innovative designs might be. And this person was not having Not having it at all. (laughs) So what else was in that? Not even a little bit. So the other article comes to us from someone named J.E. Betts from Galesburg, Illinois. I felt that this letter was really nice and it expressed a sentiment that Jeff and I have talked about quite a bit and something that we hope to bring to the podcast. Galesburg, Illinois. I believe that's home to Knox College where world silver crown expert John Davenport taught for many years. So proceed. Also, there's a numismatic connection beyond it appearing on the pages of Cornworld. So the, the article reads, 
I would like to tell you that I have made many friends and traded many coins thanks to CoinWorld. As I am pensioned from the railroad, I have many foreign passes and would like to trade passes or any other means of travel. If anyone would like to trade, please send, and I will try to send one that I have two or more of. The opening sentiment about having met a lot of friends and bought coins and, and learned more about coins through CoinWorld, that to me communicates one of our highest aspirations with the podcast and that we would really like for this to be a forum where people can share their own experiences, can learn more about the hobby, can hear interesting anecdotes and stories. You know, and hopefully, you know, whether at a coin show or in some other forum, you know, meet one another and share the passion that we all have for coins, tokens, currency, paper money, and everything else. Yes. So I thought that was a nice, succinct little letter that wasn't just ripping into Coin World for having published something they didn't like. It was expressing gratefulness for having been provided a forum to enjoy the hobby. I thought it was a very nice letter and I thought it would be fun to share. So how are you enjoying the hobby as you browse the bookshelf? What's your reading? Oh, I have just finished a really great book that I would like to share with listeners because I think that they'll find it not only informative, but I think it will help. It will give them another lens through which to understand our hobby. Nicholas Bassbanes published in 1995 a book called A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books. It doesn't deal directly with coin collecting, though numismatic books are referenced a couple of times in the text. It's not at all a focus. It's it's really it's only ever numismatics only ever comes up in passing. But it deals with collecting in a way that might resonate with many numismatists. It examines deeply the history of printing, a number of famous book sales, and it explores not just the material, but what drives people to spend millions of dollars and decades of their lives assembling great libraries. He identifies a, a whole bunch of different motivations from a cast of really zealous collectors and, and really just very interesting characters, including some bold-faced names like J.P. Morgan, for example, assembled one of the greatest private libraries oh, in the Oh, and, and the J.P. Morgan Museum there in New York City, Morgan House Museum or whatever, is yeah. gorgeous, ornate, and just opulence off the charts. It's beautiful. And so so there are a lot of bold-faced names that are included, not only in the names of collections, but he also interviews a number of different booksellers, librarians at major institutions, both private libraries and university libraries, and scholars from a number of disciplines. So he, he really, he cast a very wide net and interviewed a massive number of professionals. And what came out of it is just this fabulous, incredibly detailed and really well-researched book that meditates on collecting. He notes that some collectors are motivated by sort of antiquarian interests, a desire to preserve valuable texts. Other people were trying to chronicle developments in the history of bookmaking, whether it was the development of movable type or different styles of bindings, different materials. Some collections that he identified were organized around a theme, which, you know, we were talking about one theme for coin and token and note collecting, which is um, using a World's Fair as a theme. He noted that some people... In one case, Bassbanes identified a CIA administrator who had assembled a collection of books dating back to the 17th century that were all related in one way or another to intelligence gathering. And Bassbanes also talked about how some of these collections didn't stop with books. Some of the collectors would add ephemera, manuscripts, and correspondence from authors and publishers and other people into these massive collections, sometimes chronicling you know, the life of a particular author or talking about a particular publisher or a particular set of stories, any number of different blocks of collecting, they would put together these massive and varied collections of all of these different types of material. And people would sometimes put together unparalleled collections. The reason that I bring this book about book collecting up is that coin collectors might glean some insight about our hobby by reading about 
the bibliophiles described in Bassbane's book. Rare books and books in general are a valuable part of coin collecting. You know, you want to buy the book, not the coin. Well, before you buy the coin. Right, right. Buy the book before the coin. And numismatic literature is collectible in its own right. There are there are numismatic books and tracks dating back centuries. Bassbane's doesn't touch on numismatic literature like I talked about, but a coin collector, a numismatist, would do well to learn about rare and collectible books, and that might ignite an interest in collecting numismatic literature around any number of themes. It is noteworthy that the organization in the numismatic hobby dedicated to collectors of numismatic-related books and printed material is the Numismatic Bibliomania Society, the NBS. So we had David Fanning on our podcast. We had a two-part interview with David Fanning that came out several months ago now. I would encourage um, any of our listeners who are interested to go listen to that interview. I'll close with this thought about Bass Banes and why A Gentle Madness is a good read for coin collectors. I know that when reading it, I saw a lot of myself and a lot of my own motivations for collecting coins. I saw a lot of those motivations reflected in the people that Bass Baines interviews and describes, whether it's competitiveness and single-mindedness of acquisition, searching for truly top-tier material, the pride of ownership, the desire to chronicle and, and preserve material from the past. Those themes shine through in so many of the anecdotes that Bass Baines shares, and he examines historical depictions of book collecting as a madness and a phenomenon that does not have any individual explanation. And I know that thinking of collecting as a madness, a gentle madness, right? You know, I know that my friends have definitely looked at me funny when I tell them that I've spent, you know, $50 or $100 or however much on, on a coin or on, on a book relating to coins. But it's a book written about collectors that I think a lot of collectors would see some of themselves in. And I also just found diving into the world of book collecting showed me ways to collect coins in a more thoughtful and considered way just by looking at what some of the book collectors were doing. So it's a dense book. The edition that I read, it was originally published in 1995. I read a a subsequent edition that was published in 2012 with, with a new preface and some updated material. It's over 500 pages, so it's pretty dense. It's easy to get lost in the details, but I would absolutely encourage our listeners to try to slog through it because it's it's a very worthwhile read that I think many of our listeners might see themselves reflected to one extent or another. Awesome. So now that we've gone to your bookshelf, let's go to my trivia box here and pull out the trivia from last week, which I asked you, and then you'll be able to yes. flip that on its head and ask me a question. So absolutely. last week I asked what paper money was first released four days following President Kennedy's assassination. So I hinted at it a little earlier, talking about this week in Coin World history, the move to eliminate silver certificates, which would open up the need for a new kind of paper money. It actually happened when we talked through this question today, talked through the answer this morning before recording, it struck us both as, wait a minute, wasn't that paper money already in existence? Well, no, as a matter of fact, these notes were silver certificates. They weren't this denomination and this type until right around the time of Kennedy's assassination. What was that type of note? It was a $1 Federal Reserve note. You got it. And as Jeff alluded to, we were a little bit confused by the sort of structure of the question in the sense that when it asked like what kind of currency was introduced, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, is it talking about some specific collectible note? Because the first thing that popped into my mind were bar notes, which 
That's a fascinating uh, episode, actually. The bar notes are very interesting pieces that I'd actually love to talk about in a future episode. But basically, there was a very short-lived Treasury Secretary in the late 60s, and his signature only appeared on a handful of notes. He was only in office for about six weeks, I think, at the tail end of the Johnson administration. And I thought 60s, you know, is that what it's kind of alluding to? Were the bar notes issued earlier than I thought? Because, you know, it's 1963. The bar notes are from the late 60s. I was trying to figure that out. And so I kind of just said to Jeff, I'm like, it's talking about Federal Reserve notes, right? Like there are series 1963 Federal Reserve notes. That's a distinct part of Federal Reserve note issuance. Is that what the question refers to? And Jeff says, yes, but we were trying to figure out, couldn't that apply to series 1963 Federal Reserve notes of different denominations? Why did they highlight the $1 denomination? So we thought about it. We pulled out our uh, our handy uh, paper money catalog. And From Art Friedberg, who we interviewed uh, at the New York International. Our friend Art Friedberg, who, whose interview appears in a, in a previous episode. What dawned on us was that the only $1 notes that were in circulation prior to 1963, after the elimination of other types of notes, we've talked in a previous episode about how many different types of paper currency were issued, but silver certificates were the $1 bill previous to the 19- introduction of the 1963 Federal Reserve note. There may have been a um, the item known as a U.S. note also before that time, but the timing of this was such that this was very clearly, if you know the history, Federal Reserve notes. And it's curious to note that the issuance of those notes and the issuance of notes from the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank with the which is signified by the letter K, people shortly after the assassination began to find many connections between the Federal Reserve note and the assassination. There's this whole mythology surrounding it. K uh, just so happened to be the first initial of the president's last name. You have 11, the district, and there's four 11s on the note. You add those up and that's 44, the president's age at the time he died. There's these things. And so occasionally you'll see that mythology addressed or highlighted. And some people look at, well, you know, the president was killed because he was going to do something to the Federal Reserve. So they didn't have the power to this, that, hey, Federal Reserve notes had been around before. There was just silver certificates. They'd been around since 1914. There's quite a history of them before. Listeners, bust out your tinfoil hats and try to dig into the series 1963 Federal Reserve note Kennedy assassination conspiracy, um, if you want to. Though all of those, whether they're coincidences or whether it was in fact an elaborate plot that was expressed somehow on these notes, all these coincidences or however you want to think of them are interesting. But now we decided this week to change up uh, how we do trivia. I'm going to be asking Jeff a question and Jeff will be answering it next episode. So honestly, I think we're probably going to stick with Jeff asking me questions for the most part, but every once in a while, I'd really like to flip the script and and ask Jeff something. I don't mind being a proxy or a stand in for the audience at all, but you know, every once in a while, it'd be fun to ask Jeff something, test Jeff's numismatic trivia metal. Crap. (laughs) And uh, and we'll see how it goes. So another departure from our usual trivia uh, scheme this week is that we didn't draw our question from the Coin World trivia game. So the question was developed independently of the trivia game. Based on our interview with Jeff Shevlin, we decided to do something, a so-called dollar-themed trivia question that we developed ourselves. So Jeff, shoot, here's our so-called dollar-themed question. There were two so-called dollars that were struck for the opening of two different U.S. mint facilities. For which mints were they struck? 
And when were they struck? Ooh, 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 ooh. I've written about these. At least one of these. <laughs> Dang, I, I might have pulled the question from one of your articles or from Shevlin's work. Who knows? <laughs> we'll come back next week. You can tell tell me if I'm correct, and the listeners will find out if they are correct as well. And in the meantime, they can learn all they ever wanted to know, and maybe more, hopefully not, on so-called dollars with our interview with Jeff Shevlin. Here it is. We hope you enjoy it. Chris and I are delighted today to be joined by Jeff Shevlin, also known as the so-called guy. Now, this is a very real interview with the so-called guy. What are <laughs> so-called dollars? That's what we're going to explore in this interview. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on your show today, Jeff. And Chris, I really appreciate it. I always enjoy an opportunity to talk about so-called dollars. We do know that. I think I met you probably in uh, my first ANA show in Baltimore as an intern in 2003. I believe there was a club meeting, if not that, maybe at your table. For those who don't know what so-called dollars are, what are they? That is your specialty as a dealer and a researcher. But what are we talking about here when we say so-called dollars? Yeah, well, so-called dollars, that's a category of historical U.S. metals. And there's really lots of different types. You know, you know, in this hobby, there's so many things to collect. It's just, it's a great hobby. And there's so many specialty areas, not only in the field of coins, but currency and, and metals and tokens. And in the field of historical metals, there's quite a few different areas like this. Pre-federal metals and political metals, art metals, assay metals, election campaign metals. There's all different types of metals. And so-called dollars is a category of historical U.S. medals that commemorate events in the United States history, and they are approximately the size of a silver dollar. And that gives them their name. Yeah. Well, actually, the name so-called dollars kind of evolved in the latter 1800s when auction firms, just like today, when they put together an auction catalog, they'd have all the, you know, the pennies, nickels, and dimes, and quarters, and dollars, and the silver coinage, and the gold coinage. And oftentimes... In the back of the catalog, they'd have a section of stuff that just didn't fit anywhere else, you know, kind of oddities. And uh, they started calling them so-called dollars. So that was a term that kind of evolved around that time. And there was a book that was published by an individual by the name of Kenny in 1953 that started to catalog a number of these. And then there's the Standard Historical Reference that was published in 1963 by Hibbler and Kappen that kind of codified the entire collection series and put together, you know, documented uh, this group of metals that are probably about 500 different metals that fall into this category. Is it Harold Hibbler and Charles Kappen, for those listening at home? That book was really, I think, from my knowledge, sort of the moment they arrived on the scene. Is that uh, fair to say? Oh, definitely, yeah. The publications prior to that really were kind of very small and obscure. So Hibbler and Kappen's publication that came out in 63 was, you know, it was a large book, uh, hundreds of pages, and had photos and information on all the different metals that fell in that category. So that, if for people that weren't familiar with this series, that gave them a reference to look at. They could see the pictures. They could read little brief stories about the various metals and start learning, okay, what are these and why are they interesting and fascinating to collect? 
So you mentioned their appearance in auctions in the 19th century, the 1800s. Right. So that suggests that so-called dollars have been around for quite a while. We're actually coming up on very soon, this decade, a milestone in the issuance of so-called dollars, right? Well, what's the milestone, Jeff? Well, 1826, right? That's the earliest. Oh, there you go. Yes. The earliest so-called dollar for the Erie Canal project. Yeah, that's correct. The first HK-1. Uh, as Hibbler and Kappen defined it, was the uh, 1826 Erie Canal Completion Medal, which was a medal that was struck in white metal, silver, and gold. And it was struck to celebrate the completion of the Erie Canal, which was one of the largest federal projects undertaken by our young country. And it was completed uh, in, in 1826. And that is what really transformed New York City to be the main number one city in the nation at that time because of the fact that all the products that were going through that harbor there that were now could be transported up to the Great Lakes and uh, areas westward from there at a much faster and more efficient and less expensive mode. From my sense, from my exposure to the hobby, the so-called dollars, though, were not regular issues. They weren't issued very frequently during the 1800s, at least the last 20 years of the 1800s. Talk about the evolution of, you know, where we got from 1826, the first piece, to 50 years later, 70 years later, as the 1900s started coming into view. Well, you know, the United States, just like pretty much all other countries, have struck commemorative medals. It's just a tradition that countries have done for thousands of years. And, you know, we're a relatively young country, so we really didn't have a whole lot going on in the early 1800s. But towards the middle to latter 1800s, you know, with the Civil War era, um, all of a sudden around that time, collecting coins became a lot more popular. And so did striking medals. There's a lot of medals from that era, from the 1860s and onward, that are very popular. And in fact, out of the entire series of medals, about half of them are associated with a fair or an exposition. The first real major exposition held in the United States was the U.S. Centennial Exposition. Mm -hmm. That was held in Philadelphia in 1876 on the 100th anniversary of our Declaration of Independence. And so that was the first major exposition held in the United States. There's probably 50 or more medals, so-called dollars, that were struck for that exposition, probably 50 to 75. And um, that was kind of the start of the major expositions in the United States. Now, the idea of having expositions was already going on in Europe, so that was kind of are following along with this opportunity to share with the rest of the world what accomplishments, you know, your country has made in the last whatever period of time that you're celebrating. So after the Centennial Exposition in 1876, you know, we had the Columbian Exposition in 1893. And truthfully, there's probably about 60 or more international expositions that have been held just in the U.S. What institutions struck so-called dollars, not only for these expositions, which were the impetus for creating a lot of them, but any of the other so-called dollars that have been issued? Were they struck by private mints or were national mints involved in some capacity? You know, it's all of the above, Chris. That's kind of what's the challenge and the interest in this series is that um, you have a a lot of medals that were engraved by very famous United States mint engravers like 
Morgan and Barber and St. Gaudens. The United States Mint setting up at, at almost all these expositions and striking the official medal and oftentimes other medals at them. But in, in conjunction with them, you know, like using the Centennial Exposition as an example, there's a half a dozen other very famous engravers like Lovett and Key and Demarest and other people that struck medals for that exposition. So you've got a grouping of medals that are, you know, made by the United States government. You've got medals that are made by famous private mentors. And then you've just got random medals as well, you know, from more obscure, less known people or events in United States history that are being celebrated. So basically what's kind of interesting about the series is only United States government, only a government can make coinage, but anybody can strike a medal. And throughout our country's history, that's happened thousands of times where different organizations, people, or communities will, for whatever reason, get together, decide to host some type of celebration of their event. Maybe it's the centennial of their city or the founding of their city or some type of uh, something that happened there that they want to remember and record for history. So they may have a celebration or often did, maybe parades and things like that, and they strike medals often privately minted, that had some type of, you know, identified why this event is significant to these local people. It's interesting you make the reference to local events because that's such a transition and such a comparison with these international exhibitions. You know, I'm from St. Louis, so the Louisiana Purchase Exposition is ranks high in civic memory, even though it's been 116 years now. Yeah, 1904. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh-huh. it's been a few um, years. Yes. It, it has. And it transformed the city, especially because of the museum center, which was where the grounds were and all that. But that was a truly international experience. But staying in my home state, 1958, you have a Tipton, Missouri medal that's classified as a so-called dollar that has such a narrow focus and narrow interest. It seems as if this is one of the unfortunate shortcomings of the book is that there's such an array of topics covered, but there's also topics that are just not covered. And there are things that should be listed that aren't. Let's explore that a little bit. What would it look like if somebody were to rewrite that today? Obviously, we know that the 2008 edition you know, was updated, but they didn't add items to that. And, you know, the original in 63 excludes metalettes, smaller pieces and larger pieces that some may want to pursue as well. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. When Hibbler and Kappen published the book in 63, you know, that was way before computers, personal computers and the internet. So they did an amazing job of gathering together a large group of metals and publishing the information on them. But truthfully, today, because of uh, so many more advanced collectors and the Internet, we are aware of literally hundreds of medals that should have been cataloged that Hebrew and Kappen did not because they probably just simply weren't aware of them. And you mentioned smaller and larger metals. And truly, to be a so-called dollar, it has to be between 33 and 45 millimeters, which is approximately the size of a silver dollar, which is 38 millimeters. So smaller metals or larger metals are not cataloged in Hibbler and Kappen in their standard reference. But 
what you may not realize, Jeff, I, th I think you probably do, but maybe you don't recall, is that I am actually rewriting that standard reference. I served you up a softball. You did. And then you yes. don't give me credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, because I am working on that. It's a few years down the road because I have a publishing strategy, which I'll go over with you in just a moment. But eventually, I'm going to replace that current standard reference by Hibbler and Kaplan with a new standard reference that's going to be much more functional and easier to use. The Hibbler and Kaplan reference is a great reference, but there's a number of challenges associated with it. First of all, all the numbers are in sequence. So how do you add another 20 or 30 metals between like 78 and 79? And they organize it in like seven different categories. It's yeah. national significance, local significance, state-issued personalities, monetary issues, miscellaneous issues. Yeah, so like if the, you have Brian money is in there, which, you know, it, it, it itself has its own catalog. But, you know, as far as its inclusion in so-called dollars, it's, it's wanting then. Yeah. So the problem is if you have a medal in your hand and you don't know what it is, and it's maybe it's dated, you know, 1878, how do you find it? Is it, a, is it national? Is it local? Is it state? Is it whatever? So, you know, there's seven different chronological organizations within the Hilbert and Kaplan reference to try to find that metal. So when I replace this, I'm going to just have one generic or one standard, just a date sequence. Bill Hyder, my co-author, and I have come up with a numbering system that will allow additional discoveries to be inserted in to the correct category, the correct exposition of the correct decade, uh, so that you know, 20 years from now or 100 years from now, when there's other metals that have been discovered, they can still be chronicalized and cataloged in the same sequence. To return to the World's Fair theme for a moment, you mentioned that many of the so-called dollars were issued at World's Fairs and exhibitions. And you said something very interesting about, you know, the U.S. Mint, for example, setting up at some of these fairs and striking fair medals. I would love to hear a little bit more about the mint facilities at these fairs, and I'd also like to know about some of the more obscure pieces and which institutions created them, and what are some really distinctive World's Fair medals, and how do you feel they're emblematic of those events? The United States Mint set up at probably 30 or 40, if not more, expositions, most of the larger expositions that were held in the United States. And anything that was, you know, close to Philadelphia, I'm not sure, but they somehow they had a means probably by a train to transport their presses to those expositions and they'd set up there. Because one of the things that um, a lot of us don't realize today is how significant these events were. For example, the Columbian Exposition was held in 1893 and the United States Mint set up at that exposition. And there were two commemorative coins struck at that time to celebrate that exposition, the Isabel Quarter and the Colombian Half Dollar. And there's well over 100 medals that were struck for the Colombian Exposition in, in 1893. But the official medal for that exposition was engraved by George Morgan. United Familiar States name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. United States Mint set up there with their presses and struck these medals and sold them as souvenirs. So typically what the Mint would do is demonstrate the minting process in their exhibit. Each day, they would melt down all the, the metal, or you know the, struck, the metals that were previously struck and unsold. They'd melt them down, they'd roll them out, they'd punch out the planchets, they'd upset the rim, and they would strike them. The, the whole process, they demonstrated the minting process on a daily basis at these expositions. And there would be crowds of people watching this process, 
and then you could buy the medals that they were striking there. And the official medal engraved by George Morgan is uh, there was thousands of them sold at that exposition. And there were hundreds of buildings built for that exposition in Chicago. At that time in Chicago in 1893, there's 800,000 people living there. And it's kind of hard to imagine, but 27 million people went to that, that exhibition, the International Exposition in Chicago. So local communities would lobby the federal government to have the rights to host these events because they were aware of the positive economic impact it would have on their local communities. And as far as obscure ones, just as there's these huge events like the Columbian Exposition, you know, the year before, the year after, there might have just been some local event in some local community where maybe that town celebrated something. And they may have struck medals that instead of being sold by the tens of thousands, they might have just sold a few hundred or maybe a few dozen. So those are some of the the great rarities in this series. Um, But also even at the major expositions like the Columbian where there's over 100 medals sold, there are also some great rarities there because some are very popular and sold in large quantities. And others were not so popular and, and just not marketed so well, perhaps. And uh, there's very few of them known today. So as a collector of so-called dollars, there's lots of ways you can go about it. You can, you know, many people collect by uh, some of the major, larger expositions. Like Jeff, you mentioned the St. Louis Exposition. There's probably mm-hmm. about 50 medals from the exposition. And that's a very popular area. That's a huge impact on uh, St. Louis in 1904 in the local area there, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Corpse of Discovery, of the purchase of the Louisiana Purchase Territory by uh, Jefferson from Napoleon 100 years prior to that. Well, and and you raised a point I wanted to highlight, won't belabor it, but it would seem to me that the most interesting and probably marketable pieces would be those that are related to events that are also commemorated in U.S. commemorative coinage form. There are official pieces for the 1893, as you mentioned, the Columbian Exposition with, you know, Columbia and Isabella, uh, that would seem to dovetail very nicely anytime you can find a commemorative legal tender tie-in to an event that has some of these medals. Are those more popular? What's the market reaction for those versus some of the, the smaller events, say, that might be rarer? You know, I wouldn't necessarily say they are more popular. Certainly, okay. um as a dealer of, in these metals for since the mid to latter 1980s, I've worked with hundreds or thousands of collectors. And there are a lot of collectors that, that are interested in, for example, commemorative coins. And there is a crossover from commemorative coins and U.S. coins with the same people who maybe designed or engraved a coin that also did a so-called dollar. Like from the Columbian Expo- Exposition, the Isabel Quarter, that quarter, I'd have to take a look at one at the moment, but it has something on the reverse about the the Board of Lady Managers. Yeah. And that quarter was recognizing them for their you know their involvement with this exposition. Well at the same time there are a number of Colombian medals, so called dollars, that also have a female design on it and they have a similar type of reverse referencing the Board of Lady Managers. So that's an example of a crossover with a, a U.S. coin and so-called dollars. 
And that happens throughout the entire series because just like an engraver who's making a medal for the United States Mint or a coin for the United States Mint, they, they're inspired by different things that they've seen. So a lot of times there are elements of designs in U.S. coins that are similar to design elements that are struck in metals, either, you know, sometimes around that era, sometimes decades before. So there's lots of opportunities to find designs of U.S. coins that have similar concepts that were done prior to that, that those engravers, those artists were probably aware of and kind of inspired their designs as well. Are there any designs or individual pieces that are either particularly beautiful to you or have a story that you think is especially engaging? Well, there are, and I'll go over one or two of those with you. But that's what kind of differentiates this field from a lot of other fields. For example, if you collect like Lincoln cents, and I used to collect Lincoln cents, it's a fun, it's a great coinage to collect. But if you have 150 different Lincoln cents, they all have the same obverse, they all have the same reverse. There really isn't that many stories to tell about them. And those stories have been written and told so many times that they're, they're, the opportunity to just make a discovery and write an article or a book about some type of new research related to Lincoln Sense is going to be very difficult to do for a collector today. But in the field of so-called dollars, there's been very little written on it. There's very little research. So there's a great opportunity for collectors to make discoveries on things and drill into why, why they're, they're fun to collect or, and what makes them interesting. Using going back to the Lincoln Sense, you know, if you had 150 so-called dollars in your collection, you'd have 150 different designs probably engraved by a hundred or more different people, each one commemorating a different event in the United States history. So you have 150 different stories to tell. And every one of those stories involves not only who struck it and where it was struck, but the economics, the politics, the stories behind each one of those. So it's just, they have great stories to tell. But one of my favorites is the official medal from the Centennial Exposition that was held in Philadelphia in 1876. The official medal was engraved by William Barber. And on the obverse, it has a female kind of in a reclining position. And she's standing up, kind of standing up and rising. And above her is a halo of stars and rays of light. So the symbolism there, the United States is going to be standing up to be recognized as a world power. And what's interesting, or to put it in perspective, most of Europe in the 1860s or, you know, sometime prior to this exposition, still considered the United States to be a third world country. So basically the United States and the message that they were giving to the rest of the world on this medal is that the United States is going to be rising up to be recognized as a world power. And in liberties, normally in heraldry, you have a sword in your left hand and an olive branch in your right hand, which means I prefer peace, but I will defend myself if necessary. Well, in this case, Liberty is holding a sword in her right hand. So the message is, you know, the United States is going to be recognized as a world power and don't mess with us. So that's a really cool, interesting design that puts a lot of things in history and perspective in that era. What are some other political messages that an observer could recognize in the designs of these medals? 
You know, I'm using an example of a medal, you know, promoting the United States and on the history of our great country. But anybody can strike so-called dollars. These Anybody can strike a medal for whatever reason they want. And there's a lot of controversial medals. There's lots of medals that, you know, don't necessarily have positive messages to say. For example, the Bryan dollars that were struck in the latter 1800s and early 1900s, William Jennings Bryan's was an individual that ran for the presidency three times in 1896, 1900, and 1908. And he was defeated all three times. But there were quite a few satirical medals, actually hundreds of satirical medals that were struck at that time, making fun of William Jennings Bryan, um, trying to demean him and promoting the fact that if, you know, the issues, the negative issues, we as a country would have if this individual were to be elected. There are a lot of partisan political themes as much as sort of nationalistic political themes. Yeah, and it, it, can go, it goes all over. I mean, there's national themes, there's local themes, there's positive, there's negative. So as a collector of this series, you have an opportunity to, to learn about William Jennings Bryan or learn about the Centennial Exposition or learn about events that are commemorated by these medals in our history. You're talking about sort of this long history that these items have. Does that continue into today? Have so-called dollars been struck in the 21st century? Is there, are there going to be any more issues of similar pieces? And do you think they'll be collectible? You know, that's a great question, Chris. And truly, they are still being struck today. Just as uh, the United States government still strikes medals today, and so do private organizations and stuff, so-called dollars are still being struck to this very day. And they're fun and interesting to collect. I personally have confined my collecting interest to medals struck from 1964 and earlier. So when I was talking about rewriting the reference book for Hibbler and Kappen, I will be including medals up through 1964. That doesn't mean that medals from 65 or even the medals struck today aren't interesting and aren't collectible. They certainly are. And there are lots of people that collect those medals as well. It's just not something that I plan to um, research and write write a book about. You have to have guardrails on the topic or else you're all over the place. Exactly. You could, you could do that forever. You know, that's so true. What is the future of so-called dollars? What, what is the present and then what is the future? I mean, there seems to be still active support and interest in these, but the further removed from some of the historical events that these medals celebrate, it would seem that we might see some of that interest wane. I don't know about that. I mean, our whole hobby, unfortunately, has been suffering for the last few years from a decline in interest, but it's a cyclical thing, and chances are that will change in the next five or ten years, and we'll probably have more interest than we do at the moment. But truly, there's so many things that the younger generation draws your attention and interest in that, unfortunately, history isn't that important today. But most people, using myself as an example, as they get older, they start to learn more about the history and they start appreciating it. So even though it might appear that there's less interest today in a lot of these things because of the history associated with them, those stories are fascinating stories and they will always be significant. And they're always going to have something important to say, something important to tell. There's always going to be an interest for those types of things. And there's lots of things going on right now that are helping promote our hobby of numismatics and coin collecting and the field of so-called dollars in particular. For example, Whitman 
publishing is with the Mega Red Book, which they came out with about five years ago, for the first time ever, has included so-called dollars in them. So anybody who has an opportunity to pick up one of those books, there's a section of about 30 or 40 pages with about 50 or more different so-called dollars in each one of those editions. There's been, like, for example, Jeff, you just mailed me the auction catalog from the Bill Weber auction. And thank you very much. I appreciate your sending that to me. You're welcome. I, we had to you know, do something to get you onto the podcast. <laughs> well, that worked. <laughs> well, you know, that got us talking and that got us where we are at this moment. Yeah. So you're right. Th- those are cool things. Yeah, that was a major event. That was back in 2008, but that was a major auction of a phenomenal collection. And things like that, when it brings large groups onto the market, generates more interest in those series. What's kind of cool from my perspective for that was... Uh, Fred Hollibird, who's a good friend of mine, and he's the one who put on that auction, Hollibird Americana. And a had, past podcast guest, I should know. Yes. I, oh, is he? Well, awesome. Yeah. I'll have to look that up and, and go listen to that. I actually just had dinner at Fred's house a couple nights ago. But um, he had contacted me about a year before that, and he asked me if I would catalog this significant consignment that he received. And I said, sure, Fred, I'd be glad to do it. But as you know, I go to about 20 shows a year. And I, I don't have a whole lot of time, so it'd probably take me about a year to get that written. He said, Jeff, go ahead, take as long as you need. And so I did. And I, we, you know, I'm working with some of Fred's staff. You know, I, I photographed every item in that book. I wrote each section and we put it together. What was kind of interesting is that auction catalog won an award as a first runner up for the best auction catalog of the year that year. So I'm very, very proud of that. Cool. I'm glad you're mentioning some of the literature that you've consumed and that you've developed in the case of these auction catalogs and and the books that you've written or co-written. For any of our listeners who might be really interested in the conversation that we're having and might want to learn more about so-called dollars, might want to develop a collecting strategy or collecting plan, what are some resources that you could recommend? You've mentioned a few. What what are some resources you'd recommend as good starting places and, and how might our listeners who might be interested develop a collection? Picking up a copy of the so-called dollar book by Hibbon Kappen would be the first step because that will kind of give you an idea of what constitutes this series. Unfortunately, it's out of print, so you'd have to buy it on, on eBay or Amazon or someplace on the secondary market. And it's kind of a pricey book. It originally sold for around $35. Now it's probably 100 to $150 picking one up. But that would be one of the first things you'd want to do. The second thing you might want to do is pick up one of the books that I've published. My publishing strategy is, you know, I want to grow the hobby of numismatics and generate more interest in this series particularly. So Bill Hyder and I have published a couple of books on so-called dollars. Our first book was Discover the World of Charbonneau So-Called Dollars, which we published a couple years ago. And that won the award as the best book of the year. And our latest book, So-Called Dollars in the Pacific Coast Expositions, also won the award as the best book of the year. And those are both storybooks. Both those books talk about the events, the people, and the places, and things that happen. Because we believe that for collectors to have an interest in this series, they have to understand something about the history and the background of the ser- of the medals. So we tell those stories in those books. For collectors who might want to meet other so-called dollar collectors or so-called dollar experts, are there any hobby groups or are there any collector groups that specialize in so-called dollars? There are a few things that I have started, but they're kind of on a smaller scale. One of the things that I do is I, ha- I host an event twice a year 
and it's called a Soul Call Dollar Fellowship Gathering. And about 15 to 20 collectors get together, and it, we spend it's a four-day symposium, educational symposium. So we have a, uh, a get-together like on Friday evening, and then Saturday and Sunday are pretty much filled with hour-long presentations on various topics associated with so-called dollars. And I give some talks, Bill gives some talks, and other members uh, uh, give talks. Then on the last day, we give a, we go on a field trip to some type of local numismatic attraction. And we've done this for quite a few years. One year, we had it in Southern California, in San Diego, uh, on the 100th anniversary of the one of the events down there. We had it in San Francisco, where we went and visited the various exposition sites that were held there. We've done it in Denver. We actually, one year, we went through on the 2014 on the 100th anniversary of the completion of the Panama Canal, yes, we sailed through the Panama Canal. And this is a good time to tie that into uh, a future podcast guest, Dan Carr. You commissioned, I believe, Dan Carr. I did, that's correct. To make medals that you then carried with you on that journey. I did, yes. Because 100 years prior to that, in 1914, the very first ship that sailed through the Panama Canal carried some so-called dollars, a medal that's a popular collectible today. It's HK398. So I basically recreated that event. I created a medal similar to that on the obverse, and I put a different reverse legend on it talking about the 100th anniversary. I had Daniel Carr strike those medals. I took orders for them and sold quite a few of them, about 700 or more. One to me. And and one to you. Awesome, Jeff. (laughs) A group of us took those to the Panama Canal on the 100th anniversary to recreate that event. And then after uh, we completed the canal, I, I then shipped them to everybody who had ordered them. That's really cool. Creating sort of creating a collectible from the anniversary almost. Yeah. I, I strike a couple medals a year. I've been doing that for a number of years. And Daniel Carr has been striking those for me. And echoes of the past and the ways of the past too. So that's probably... A great place to end our discussion today. We want to thank you so much. We brought so-called dollars from the past to the present to today. We appreciate you taking some time to walk through the very fascinating area with us. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. And Chris, it's been a pleasure. If I might mention, there's one other opportunity to investigate so-called dollars, and that is my website. I actually have a very popular and engaging website on so-called dollars. It's so-calleddollar.com. It's the so-called dollar collector's website. It has a black background, but it has information on so-called dollars. It has information on books related to them. It has discussion topics where hundreds of collectors have posted thousands of topics. It has information on medals for sale and other resources such as articles about the, this series. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on again, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate being able to, uh, to check out that resource. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. That was our interview with Jeff Shevlin, so-called dollar expert, so-called guy. We thank you for listening to that and hopefully learning and uh, being exposed to a new area of the hobby. If you found this entire episode enjoyable or helpful Uh, Please remember not only to keep on listening every week, but to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast. That's the best way for you to support the show is to keep on listening every week and subscribe. And also feel free to reach out to us. We say it almost every week and I'll reiterate it here. You know, if you want to reach out to us, 
We love hearing from listeners. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, etc., we might even mention your letter on the podcast. So keep on listening every week. Remember to subscribe. Until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.